Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. Our guest today is Dr. Richard Sauter. He is the author of five books and major reports. Today, we are going to be talking to him about his book, The Richard Sauter Briefing, that has just come out. He's also the author of Underwater and Underground Bases, Kundalini Tales, Underground Bases and Tunnels, What is the Government Trying to Hide, and Hidden in Plain Sight Beyond the X-Files. He is a researcher. He has several degrees. He's traveled all over the world and spent the last 30 years researching what is happening to humanity in this planet. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to talk about some very complex and often difficult things today on this show. Stand by and welcome Richard Sauter to It's Rainmaking Time. Good morning. Good morning, Kim. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. After reading the Richard Sauter briefing, I have to tell you, I didn't want to cover this subject. I didn't want to cover the book, not because it wasn't a worthy book or a valuable book, but because there's so much difficult material in it. (laughs) But I feel called to cover it anyway, because a lot of what's in there, people may or may not know. And I think that the responsible thing to do on my end is to work with you on this show, to cover this and to lay things out in such a way where, A, people still want to pick up the book and read it, but to cover the essences of it in such a way that they get how jam-packed it is with important information for them. What led you to write the Richard Sauter briefing in 2010? Well, it wasn't my idea, is the short answer. A a German publisher, Roman Schmidt Verlag, pitched the idea to me out of the blue. I did not know Roman Schmidt before he contacted me with, you know, uh, an outline of a book that he thought I might be uniquely suited to write. He was familiar with my work. I was not familiar with his publishing house, but he said he thought I was the man to do the book, and so I thought about it for a day or two, and then I said, okay, I'll do it. I found that the other book that we just did a piece on, Hidden in Plain Sight, Beyond the X-Files, was somehow digestible simply because you cited the technology, you cited the patents. The obvious conclusion is that we have underground tunnels and cities and totally different types of transportation and under the seabed, the same But something about the Richard Sauter briefing, when you put it all together, I want to just lean back and say, what are we to do? But first, let's talk about what is this briefing? Well, the brief, the essence of the briefing is to tell people uh, we have been massively lied to. The reality that we're living in is actually a surreal, massive, thousands of years long lie, a veil of unknowing not knowing disinformation, misinformation, and lies has been pulled over the earth like a dark curtain, and the majority of humanity are under its thrall. In the book, you talked about so many difficult subjects like the scientific side of mind control, the political side of mind control. When it comes to the technology that's developed, of course, I interviewed Nick Begich many, many months ago, but the level of which you speak of and cite the shadow government and the enslavement of humanity, false flag attacks, secret and underground and underwater bases, the secret space program, Earth's insidiously hidden history, and the coming Earth changes are really, even though it's a small book of about, let's see, less than 100 pages, the pieces in it are so heavy that literally it could be a 500-page book. Yes, in fact, each chapter in this 
book could feasibly be expanded into a book of two, three, four hundred pages easily. In fact, my German publisher would like for me to do that. He'd like for me to expand each chapter into a series of books, uh, each chapter being a book in its own right. Um, and we may do that. That's on the back burner. But this is, in a sense, like a French pastry, where you don't wolf the whole thing down in, in ten bites, but you take one bite, you sit back, and you let it digest a little bit. It's, it's very rich in that sense. It really is. You quote Professor Frank Drake, which I thought was very interesting in Chapter 7. Not that I want to speed into Chapter 7. And you talk about the Drake equation. Can you talk about that for a moment? Sure. There was a a, a famous, now famous, um, conference or meeting of uh, of of cutting edge astronomers and space scientists um, back in the 1960s at the Green Bank Observatory in West Virginia, and the topic of the of the conference was to talk about you know uh, extrasolar. Um, solar system, uh, planets, and the possibility of, of extraterrestrial life. And Frank Drank, Frank Drank, who is a, was and still is a very well-known professor and figure in astronomy, um, came up with the Drake equation, which was used to um, estimate the number of uh, planets potentially in the galaxy that could have a... Um, technologically advanced civilization on them. And I cite the equation in that chapter and discuss it, explain the terms in the equation a little bit, and then cite other evidence to show that, indeed, it is highly likely that in this galaxy, which has something like 400 billion solar uh, solar systems, 400 billion stars, as we're finding out, um, many, many stars have planets around them and solar systems around them, so it's conservatively there are probably trillions of planets in this one galaxy alone. And from the, from the standpoint of simple statistics on a stochastic basis alone, it is highly probable that there are many planets in this galaxy with life on them, and indeed it's highly probable that there are, there are other planets with intelligent species of life on them. In other words, we are not alone. I wonder why we never heard of the Drake equation. That's very interesting. Yes. Well, I heard about it when I went away to college. Uh, um, the, the equation appeared in a book written by Carl Sagan and a, and a Russian astronomer uh, named um, Shlovsky. And they co-authored a book together uh, discussing the feasibility of um, life in the cosmos. And intelligent life in the cosmos, and they cited his equation in their book, and it's really well-known, I think, in the astronomy community and in the space science community. Um, part of the reason why it's not widely discussed in our culture is because our culture has been dumbed down. Uh, we have been propagandized not to know a lot of things and to be misinformed and disinformed about still other things, so that in general we live in a culture that doesn't know much about much of anything, and one of those things would be the Drake Equation, because if you knew the Drake Equation and you thought about it, you would you would come to the conclusion that, hey, you know, the great likelihood is that we are not alone. The great likelihood is that the galaxy has many other planets on it that are life-bearing, 
in all likelihood there are other intelligent species of life in this galaxy and the many other galaxies throughout the universe. And that's a very cosmic kind of thought, which the powers that be that rule this planet would prefer that people not think. But the reality is that the galaxy is teeming with life. That's the logical conclusion. You know what I heard, Richard, that there are universes. When we think of the universe, we think of the universe as a single verse, but it's really a multiverse, and there are other universes happening at the same time we are, and I just find that so fascinating. Well, you know, there's if you look at Vedic cosmology, um, and you look at Vedic uh, iconographic art, um, there's one beautiful uh, painting I saw by a Hindu painter in a, in a wonderful collection of Vedic art issued by ISKCON, International Society of Krishna Consciousness. And in that picture, Krishna is leaning back in his uh, four-armed cosmic form and breathing the universes in and out. In the Vedic conception, Krishna uh, breathes out the universes, and they come out of his mouth or, his no- or out, of his, out of his nose like little bubbles, like the bubbles that children, soap bubbles that children blow on a breezy spring day. And literally an infinity of universes come out of his lungs when he breathes out. And then when he inhales, that's on the exhalation. On the inhalation, he breathes them, sucks them all back in again. But he's breathing them in and out. Each universe has an infinity of galaxies in it. And then he breathes them back in. And this takes place over a time span of billions and billions and billions of years, and each cycle is untold billions and billions of years long. So from the Vedic conception, um, that thought is not strange at all. But for our Western mind, it is very strange. You find that some of these other philosophical traditions around the world probably have a closer conception to the way reality really works than we do. The Jains, for example, uh, who are a small religious group in, in South Asia, uh, have a much different conception of reality in the universe and the age of the cosmos than we do. The Hindus do as well. And uh, some of the Native American uh, cosmologies and on and on. Our Western European mindset is, is a rather recent um, development in human history and one of the more bizarre mindsets and probably not as close to the objective reality of the universe as some of these much older philosophies. You quote the authors of Forbidden Archaeology, The Hidden History of the Human Race by Michael Cremo and Richard Thompson. This must be a valuable book to you. Well, it is. And in fact, not only to me, but to many others, this book has been translated into dozens of languages. You say 57 languages. That's pretty profound. That's right, and maybe even more in the last year or two. But uh, I don't know how many people have read it, probably millions of people all around the world. It is one of the most influential books of, of the late 20th century, early 21st century, because it challenges the prevailing intellectual paradigm that has come out of Western Europe and North America over the last century or century and a half, and stood that paradigm on its ear. It is directly um, cited evidence again and again. The original 
unabridged version of this book ran to something like 900 pages, extremely thickly documented and footnoted. Essentially, what these guys did, um, uh, uh, Michael Cremer and Richard Thompson, was to go through the archaeological, physical, anthropological, and historical literature with a fine-toothed comb for the past 200 years or so and pull out all the anomalous papers, articles, research findings, and discoveries that challenged the mainstream historical, physical, anthropological, and archaeological paradigm. And they discovered, using evidence that mainstream archaeologists, anthropologists, and historians have discarded, but never left evidence that they pulled out of their own mainstream documentation, they have proven that modern men, that is, modern uh, anatomically modern homo sapiens, have been on this planet far longer than we are taught when we go away to school and to the university, going back millions of years. And in fact, um, this is a view that accords with the Vedic literature, the Sanskrit literature that's thousands of years old from South Asia. And I was first uh, enlightened to this information when I was doing my first master's degree back in the 1980s. I encountered a Hindu monk, a brahmacharya, who um, was conversant with some of this literature. And I was having a discussion with him at the time, and he was talking to me about Lord Rama, who was an ancient Indian king a long, long time ago. And as he talked to me about Lord Rama and his exploits, uh, he was a very great ruler in ancient Indian history. This is Lord Rama of the Ramayana, correct? That's, that's correct. Okay, very and good. Um, he, he was talking to me, and as he was talking to me about what he had done, I assumed that he was talking about a man who maybe lived three or four or 5,000 years ago, contemporary with ancient Egypt or ancient Babylon or ancient Sumeria. But as he talked, I began to realize, no, he's going back further than that. So then I asked him, when did Lord Rama live? And he said, well, no one knows exactly, but maybe anywhere from half a million to two million years ago. And I was floored. This was a man who was at that time uh, completing a Ph.D. in chemistry, an extremely bright, well-educated, Western-educated Indian man. And I thought, surely you can't be serious. So I said, you know, uh, you, you, can't, you can't mean that. And he said, oh, I do. You see, we in India have the real history of the world. What you guys have is just fantasy. It's nothing. It's just made up. How is that possible? How come Indian scholars haven't freaked out and gone to the news or television, radio, or blogs and said something? Well, you have to understand there's a very different culture in India than there is here, and that's why you have a huge culture clash between, say, um, haven't you noticed we're fighting wars uh, against Pakistan and Afghanistan, and we're ready to go to war against Iran? Their culture over there is extremely, uh, extremely ancient. Yes, no, I actually spent a month in India, and as a matter of fact, I was arrested at the Taj Mahal. But then I was released. That is actually a comedy story. But India is so different from Pakistan, though. Seriously. Well, it, it is, and it's, it's different from Afghanistan as well. 
But what you'll find is, of course, there are Indians. If, if you're talking about the Indian upper class or middle class, many of them are thoroughly westernized and would have degrees from Western universities, universities in the United States, in England, uh, in, in Australia, Canada, places like that. So many of the upper class in India have accepted uh, the Western conception of history because they have made common calls with um, Western politics and the Western economic order. I'm talking about a culture in India that goes much deeper and that is much more ancient. Um, and it's it's been there for a long, long time. Uh, have you ever heard of the Battle of Kurukshetra? No. Well, you see, that's something that is part of Indian culture, but it's is virtually undiscussed in the West. I mean, I didn't hear about it uh, until I began talking to Hindus when I was in my early 30s. I was never taught about it in school, but the Battle of Kurukshetra lasted 17 days. And um, traditional Indian lore uh, holds that something on the order of over 600 million people were killed during the Battle of Kurukshetra. And you have to understand that in ancient Vedic times, they had technology that's very similar to what we have today. They had uh, things that would be analogous to our stealth fighter-bomber technology, to fighter jets, uh, to helicopters, to dirigibles, to ballistic missiles, uh, to on and on, to um, e even to uh, lasers and things like this. They had a technically advanced civilization, many, many thousands of of years ago, and this becomes clear when you read the Vedas. Uh, I've read some of them in English translation. And uh, even in the Ramayana, uh, Ramayana for example, uh, there are many references to sky cars and vimanas and celestial chariots and so forth and celestial beings. So you can see that many years ago, a long, long time ago, in remote antiquity, there was also... Uh, highly sophisticated technological civilization on this planet. And we are simply not told about that in our schooling. And that's why I mean by Earth's insidiously hidden history. We go away to school and we are taught, well, you know, there was the Stone Age, which just lasted tens or hundreds of thousands of years. And before that, people were basically like monkeys. And then they evolved into modern man. And then for, you know, hundreds of thousands of years, 100, 200, 300,000 years, they lived in caves and wore skins and uh, used bows and arrows and clubs and that kind of thing until they be suddenly became more civilized for some unexplained reason about 5,000 years ago and abruptly moved from uh, using clubs to building pyramids. Uh, by the way, that our engineering, engineering firms could not build today. So it's never explained to us how people went within ostensibly just a few generations from living in caves to building pyramids that we can't build today. Our technology today could not reproduce the Great Pyramid in Egypt, for example. Um, so explain that from our prehistory. And by the way, the medieval Arab chroniclers um, had um, preserved uh, an, an ancient story that came down from pre-Arab times that uh, the builder of the pyramids was not actually uh, Cheops or Khufu, but was a pre-dynastic king named Sorid, 
S-A-U-R-I-D, King Saurid, who had uh, been informed by his seers that a, a catastrophic cataclysm was going to strike the earth and destroy the advanced civilization that then um, existed. And so in his order, uh, the Great Pyramid and the other two pyramids were constructed as um, capsules to preserve their technology and their knowledge um, to make it through the coming cataclysm, which was going to effectively wipe out the civilization that then existed. Now, this is a story that's very different from what, from what we're taught when we go away to school. However, uh, this tradition has been kept alive and was preserved by the uh, Arab, Arab historians in the Middle Ages, but it's certainly something that is not taught in Western universities or in the school system here in the United States. I wonder if there is and will ever be a way to transmit history, because anytime you transmit history, your meta-message is also some cosmology or some angle of the history. I wonder if it will be possible to transmit a contextual cosmological history of new knowledge based on discoveries and facts getting out that aren't allowed to seep out through the traditional school systems, including universities. Yeah, well, you have to understand that our uh, so-called public school system and the universities, especially here in the West, but also in, in many other areas of the world, are mind control systems. And remember that victors, the victors write history. And so for the last Five, six, seven thousand years at least, this planet has been governed by, or at least very large areas of the planet have been governed by extremely violent nation state systems which brook no dissent and have waged imperial warfare, whether it was the Romans or the Egyptians or the Babylonians or after the Romans, the, the Muslim uh, armies or the Holy Roman Empire or the uh, the Catholic Church, or then we have later empires such as the Spanish Empire, the English, uh, British Empire, and now we have the uh, the American Empire seeking to impose its will on the world. And then there was the Soviet system during the 20th century and the Chinese Communist system. So for thousands of years, if you, you look back through history, back through the centuries, back through the millennia, going back thousands of years, there's been one vicious, violent imperial system after another. And they each impose their will economically, militarily, politically, religiously, and also in terms of rigorously enforcing one exclusive view of history, theirs. And if you don't like it, if you don't want to go along, guess what? They'll kill you. And I'm not exaggerating. Just look at all the genocides and pogroms and look at the burning of the library at Alexandria, for example, which happened twice, I believe which was a precious repository of information from thousands of years ago, and this is lost for all time. Um, why was it burned? Well, the victors make history. And if they know there's a historical tradition that is not in agreement with the history they would like to force on people at sword point, then they'll destroy it, and that's exactly what happened. Do you know about the schools? I can't remember the name of the school exactly at this moment. I wish I did. Rudolf Steiner schools. Are you familiar with his schools? Yes, in Switzerland. Um, and um, I don't remember the, 
the name of it off the top of my head, but Rudolf Steiner, you have to understand, was targeted by the Nazis. Because Rudolf Steiner also has a very, um, had, he's dead now, a very uh, radical interpretation of history. And uh, and also um, the um, cosmology, uh, you know, the actual uh, history of the, of the universe, not only of the Earth, but of the universe, and how, how the universe works and, and is put together and, and the nature of life and, and all of these things. My understanding is the um, Nazis intended to kill him, to trap him on a railroad uh, car with hit men at both ends with shotguns so that he couldn't escape in whichever way he went, uh, they intended to kill him. But because he was highly developed spiritually and very intuitive and clairvoyant and telepathic, he was aware of this plot to kill him and managed to escape it because he sensed in advance what was what, what, what was in the works. Um, but yes, I'm aware of Steiner. I would imagine that his schools would be extremely different in terms of the paradigm, the cosmology, the methods for transmitting knowledge. And I would bet that would be a complete distinction from traditional schools throughout the U.S. and yes, maybe the yes. world. Yes, but you, that's true. And, and yet Steiner and people like him have been marginalized. Most people have never heard of Rudolf Steiner in our, in our, in our society because he's not mentioned in our schools. Um, he would he would likely not be mentioned in most universities, even if you were to study European history and European philosophy. It's a fair bet that he would not be mentioned, or that if he were if he were to be mentioned, that very little time would be given him. That he would be given very short short shrift. So, but that's true about people like Steiner. Um, he did he did start a school called Esoteric School. Um, it was an offspin of the Theosophical Society. Um, he broke with um, the Theosophical Society, but he, I think, was influenced by uh, Wolfgang von Goethe, the famous German uh, philosopher and historian of Man of Letters of about 200 years ago. Um, but that's right. Steiner was a free thinker, a deeply spiritual man, and um, anyone who wants to Google his you know his his name and his teachings and his philosophy can learn can learn a lot. He was um, a genius, really. What do you think of Graham Hancock's and Robert Bouval's book, Underworld: The Mysterious Origins of Civilization and Fingerprints of the Gods? Well, you know, I think that those are both important books, and of course, they're not the only books they've written. Each of them have written other books as well, but those two in particular um, use a similar. Um, approach to to what Michael Cremo did in that uh, they don't just speculate, they adduce uh, evidence to buttress their arguments, which are that um, the civilization in Egypt uh, greatly predates and antecedes the uh, dynastic Egyptian civilization that we're presented with when we take a tour of Egypt or read an Egyptian history book. They don't deny the reality of dynastic Egypt. That's real. It's there. You can see the evidence of it. What they say is that the history of Egypt actually goes back several thousand years preceding dynastic Egypt, five, six, seven thousand years. And that mainstream Egyptology will not accept. And yet 
they bring forth evidence that suggests that that's the case. Uh, and also, um, there's evidence of previous uh, previous cycle of advanced civilization in that all over the world, we have these huge megalithic um, prehistoric ruins from, from remote antiquity uh, built on a grand scale with huge slabs of rock weighing one, 200 tons, 300 tons, 400 tons, sometimes 1,000 tons or more. And yet we are led to believe that people just pounded out these gargantuan slabs of stone with copper chisels and wooden mallets and then dragged them around on hemp ropes on wooden rollers. I'm here to tell you, you can't do that. It's just not physically feasible. So there was a very advanced technology in the past with powerful machinery and um, sophisticated engineering abilities uh, that would challenge some of the most advanced engineering firms on the planet today to duplicate. And yet we have firm evidence of that from thousands of years ago. It's uh, at various sites around the planet. And beyond that, beneath the oceans, off the coasts of some of the continents, uh, whether it be South Asia, East Asia, or other places, there are archaeological ruins beneath the sea. Now, the sea is as high as it is now because about 11,000 years ago, the glaciers and the great ice caps at the uh, high latitudes of the Earth in the Southern Hemisphere, and especially in the nor Northern Hemisphere, melted. And as ice caps retreated from the temperate zone back into the polar latitudes, all of this water had to go somewhere, and it melted off and rushed in vast torrents into the world's oceans and raised the sea level globally by about 300 feet. So any cities that had been built in coastal regions, say, 12, 15,000 years ago, sank beneath the waves as the sea level rose. Well, it turns out some of these ancient cities are now being rediscovered. Wow. We we are not taught about that either, but it just buttresses the idea and provides support for the idea that, you know what, thousands of years ago, there was another civilization we're not taught about. It seems it was global in scope. It had advanced technology that in some cases we can't duplicate today. Uh, we don't have the ability to um, excavate and dress hundreds of tons the large stones weighing hundreds of tons, to dress them and fit them with near-optical precision, let alone move them around over, over miles of, 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 of uneven topography. Yet, there was a civilization 5, 10, 15,000 years ago that had that ability, and we're not taught about that civilization in our mainstream history and anthropology. We have a kind of Global amnesia and the powers that be that are controlling this planet are doing everything they can to see that we don't remember who we are, where we came from, the heights that we attained thousands of years ago. You went to Egypt, didn't you, with a French Egyptologist, Antoine, is it Gigal? Yes. Talk about that. I went with Antoine twice and I took a wonderful tour of Egypt. Uh, we got into some sites that most tourists don't go to. Um, Antoine uh, is as a husband who has dual Egyptian and Italian citizenship, and she also has lived in Egypt uh, many years and speaks Egyptian Arabic fluently. She 
French by birth, but speaks uh, several languages fluently, and Egyptian Arabic is one of them. So she knows the country very well. Um, she knows some archaeologists there, and so she got us, it was a very small group of six or seven people, into um, some places that most tour groups don't go. And I saw uh, a lot of unusual things, including I saw granite, uh, large granite blocks that had very smooth, um, small diameter holes drilled in them that were really um, very straight and very smooth. And you could see some uh, faint grooves on the inside of the holes meaning that ancient Egypt, like four or 5,000 years ago, had machine technology. Because nowadays you can only drill through granite with diamond-tipped drills. The, the oil industry does it all the time to drill for petroleum, because when you get down underground and you're drilling through the, through the granite to get to the oil deposits, the oil industry has to use uh, diamond-tipped drills, because you can't even cut through granite with, with steel drills. The granite is... It's, it's harder than steel, in other words. Only diamond is, is harder than the, than the granite. And yet, the ancient Egyptians were drill, drilling very smooth, straight holes through granite, and I saw this with my own eyes. You couldn't do this in a modern machine shop because they don't have diamond-tipped drills. So what that means is the ancient Egyptians had high-speed high speed, diamond-tipped drills or something like that. And yet we're told they did everything with copper chisels. Not so. Physically impossible. In other words, there was a highly developed technology thousands of years ago that existed and we've been lied to. All of this has been hidden from us. I think that Bouval's and Hancock's book, Message of the Sphinx, A Quest for the Hidden Legacy of Mankind, placing the Sphinx's age at 12,000 years or more, mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. I think they're right. I, I've been to the Sphinx, and by the way, when I was to the Sphinx, um, there was a, a doorway open near the rear. Uh, you can't go right up to the Sphinx. It's, it's blocked off with a fence, and there are armed guards who would arrest you or maybe even shoot you if you went in there. Um, so you can't get in there, but there clearly is a passageway inside the Sphinx. Again, we have not been told everything about ancient Egypt. There are mysteries and secrets and information and knowledge that's being held back from us by those in the know, the, the cognoscenti. But yes, the Sphinx is, is clearly very old, and I agree with uh, that, that, that analysis that indeed it is far older than we have been told and predates anything in our history books. So in your view, and also obviously Graham Hancock's and Robert Bouval, is Egypt the key evidence for a new translation of history? Yes, um, there are many keys, but you know, frequently you speak of a keystone. I would say it would be appropriate to speak of Egypt, or rather the cover-up of the true history of Egypt as uh, one of the key keystones, or maybe the key keystone, for getting at the true history of the human race. Um, in theory, there are others, but it's probably the most prominent um, I believe there are people who do have access to uh, some of the information that would uh, open up this breach, if you will, and start the flow of genuine information about our true history 
that has been hidden from us. I think Zai Hawass, who is the director of the Supreme Council of Antiquities in Egypt, and who is the administrator in charge of places like the Sphinx and the pyramids and the other ancient archaeological sites in Egypt, he would be one of the gatekeepers of the truth. Um, people like him are put in that type of position to hold back the truth. And they, they, they dole out little bits of historical fact by dribs and by drabs, taking care uh, not to give away uh, the store, not to not to divulge pieces of information uh, that would begin to, um, you know, break this great broad, uh, dam of, of information um, behind which all of the truth has been held back. So people like him are key, and, and he's one of the big names internationally. And you have to understand that the big major universities like and, and, and museums like the Smithsonian and Harvard and and places like that, the Sorbonne, the Louvre, places like that, they're part of the international conspiracy of silence. There's a real conspiracy to keep the human race deaf, dumb, and blind. It's part of the mind control program on this planet to keep us from knowing who we are and what our real history is. You can kind of see evidence of what you're talking about, even in things like Gavin Menzies, who wrote the book 1421. I've never read that book. It basically shows that the Chinese were here in America before we called it America. And he I've brought together the book, but I've never read Yeah, it. he went through a lot of attack for bringing forth evidence that Columbus had a map of America already. Sure he did. You know, and in fact there are some Native American groups in North America that had this knowledge. When I was completing my PhD in political science, I um, knew personally uh, a man who who was um, studying at, at the same university and who was a member by birth of one of the Pueblo um, reservations in New Mexico. And he told me that, that in their tradition, um, which by the way is not much, very much shared with outsiders, the Pueblo cultures have held on to their traditions pretty tightly. Uh, they're suspicious of white people with good reason. There's good history for being suspicious. Um, but he told me that one of their stories, going back centur centuries, is about the Japanese. And they knew about the Japanese because um, centuries passed uh, they were from the Far East, trading parties would come across Pacific. And they would come inland trading for Turks things like turquoise, which are relatively plentiful in the American Southwest. And so they would come over to the Four Corners region of New Mexico and Arizona uh, trading for turquoise, which they would then take back across the Pacific Ocean to Japan and China. But he said, you know, um, we knew about the Japanese before you guys got here. We call them the frog people because they came across the pond. But understand, for, for the people in the Southwest, the pond was not the Atlantic Ocean but the Pacific Ocean. Very interesting. <laughs> uh, there is a similar consciousness that just repeats itself over and 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 over throughout time. And I think part of your book, the Richard Sauter Briefings, is getting to and at least providing the meta messages of what that is, 
what that pattern is that keeps repeating and history being written by the victors. Talk a little bit about the White Rose Movement. What is it? Well, the White Rose Movement started back in, in, the, late, in, in the mid-1940s during World War II in the Third Reich of Nazi Germany. Um, the White Rose was a nonviolent anti-war movement started by a group of young university professors and students in the German university system. Now imagine the courage of these people during the height of World War II to anonymously, secretly begin leafleting against the Third Reich and against uh, what the German military was doing. And uh, so they made up these leaflets against the war and against the Third Reich, and uh, they used as a symbol the White Rose. They called themselves the White Rose and began putting out these leaflets uh, in cafes and universities around the country. Eventually, they were found out and arrested. Uh, many of them were jailed and or tortured. Some of them were even executed. One of those who was executed was a young woman named Sophie Scholl. And it's interesting, her trial took place in the spring of either 1944 or 45, I forget which. And she was drugged before a Nazi judge. She knew she was going to be executed before the day was out because, of course, it was a kangaroo court. And at her, at her trial, she spoke very courageously to the judge and uh, didn't recant her views whatsoever. She spoke about the wrongness of the war and about how he was on the wrong side of history. And then at the end, when it became clear that she was uh, soon going to be sentenced to death and executed, uh, she said something to the effect of, look, what a beautiful day it is. The sun is shining. What a fine day to die. And then she was uh, found guilty, sentenced to death, and taken out, and they uh, chopped her head off. So the White Rose Movement uh, survived her execution. It lives to the present day. And in fact, earlier this year, on April 15th, I myself, acting under the uh, impetus of the White Rose Movement, went to a American, a United States Air Force nuclear missile silo in North Dakota. And I went over the security fence and onto the nuclear missile silo. And there I staged a nonviolent peace demonstration against nuclear war. And in memoriam of Sophie Scholl and the White Rose Movement, I took along a huge bouquet of three dozen white roses and placed that uh, by the gate to the nuclear missile silo. Well, when the Air Force military police showed up, and, and they did show up in force, lots of guys with automatic rifles, one armored vehicle with a huge uh, machine gun on top, uh, helicopters flying around, I mean the whole nine yards. Uh, but when the Air Force showed up, they um, just took the bouquet of, of white roses and threw the white roses on the ground. You see their agenda is destruction, it's nuclear missiles, preparation for nuclear war. They, For them, uh, aesthetics and beauty and spirituality, um, those are not high values. Uh, they're not preparing for love and peace. They're preparing for war and destruction. Um, that's what nuclear missiles are for, and that's what they do if they're ever 
the launch. So that's what I did, and I have talked about the White Rose in my writings and in my interviews. And, of course, I talked about it when I called the newspaper. I called the local newspaper there in Minot, North Dakota, and gave them an interview uh, right right from the nuclear missile silo as the Air Force uh, was moving in to arrest me. So um, I was very much acting in that spirit. If we don't want nuclear war to happen, if we don't want world war to happen, there are things that we must do and that we can do. And just passively sitting in our recliners or sitting in front of our, our computer laptops and blogging, you know what? That's not enough. At a certain point, just talking about what you're thinking is not enough. You actually have to do something. You have to live your life. And if you don't want war, then guess what? You have to physically, concretely do something. I think you're right, but I think there's something a little different about, for example, what you did in the peaceful, nonviolent protest is that you penetrated their space. In other words, you didn't stand outside the fence and do your thing. That's right. I cast a direct vote against it. By the way, it wasn't me who penetrated their space. See, I don't give them that right. They penetrated our space with their darkness and their preparation for genocidal war. Do you understand Yeah, I do. I do understand it. But to listeners, that could be a translation. That's part of the mind change that we need to make and we will make as we move deeper into the 21st century. And, and, and the sooner we make it, the better. The mind change we need to make is this is our planet. It, by all rights, can be and should be a peaceful paradise. So those who want to sow their, their dragon's teeth of death and destruction, also known, a.k.a. nuclear missiles, um, you know what? They are interlopers. They are the trespassers. So in effect, all I was doing was cra- claiming my human right to be at peace and without threat of genocidal destruction on the planet of my birth, on the planet where I reside. So, in fact, it is I who was in the right and not they. I was merely pointing out that by no means do you have the right to bring this planet to the point of genocidal destruction through nuclear fire. You're very, very courageous. Well, and I'm I'm also on the right side of history, and that's to my advantage and in my favor. They're on the wrong side of history. If this planet has a future, it's a future of peacefulness and of harmonious cooperation. That's our future. There's no future in nuclear war. Take it from me. War is a dead end, and nuclear war is one of the deadest ends of all. So if we have a future, you know what? Millions of other people are going to have to get the courage of their convictions and follow along, um, because I can't do it by myself. I can be a pathfinder. I can sketch out a way of the white rose and of standing up. You know what? You have feet for a reason. That's to stand up on. And you have a voice for a reason. That's to speak out with. If you don't stand up and make a stand, if you don't use your voice to speak out, shame on you. I totally get that. But I will tell you that 9 out of 10 people will not exercise the courage. Well, then I want that 1 out of 10. Forget the 9 out of 10 who are so scared they won't even open their door if someone knocks on their front door. Forget about them. 
uh, I'm not interested in people who are afraid of their own shadow. If it's only one out of ten, if it's only one out of a hundred, if it's only one out of a thousand, then I'm talking to those people, and if they get it, they don't need me to take them by the hand or to show them what to do. They all know what to do. Follow your own heart. Follow a path with heart. Be courage. Be cur- show courage. You know, we have the capacity for courage. It's not that I don't have fear. You think I didn't have any fear uh, going on a nuclear missile silo, knowing that people were going to come for me with guns, knowing that I would was going to be handcuffed and chained and taken away to jail, that I didn't have any fear? Of course I did. But you know what? I acted in spite of my fear. I spoke out in front of, in, in spite of my fear. And I testified in court just as forthrightly to the judge and to the prosecuting attorney and in front of the U.S. Marshals and the FBI, just as forthrightly as I'm speaking to you today. Not because I had no fear, but I did it in despite fear. How many days did you spend in jail? 100 days. How was that? Well, the jail system in this country, the jails are violent. There are a lot of angry young men in jail uh, with sociopathic tendencies. I was, I was incarcerated with, let me think of the guys in my little cell block. There was an arsonist. My cellmate for six weeks was a serial murderer. Um, my, um, and there were um, car thieves in there, wife beaters, child rapists. Um, barroom brawlers, drug dealers, gangbangers. I mean, you get the picture. Those are the kinds of people that are in the jails in this country. And they're in all over the country, from north to south, east to west. Um, the jails in this country are not good. The food is bad. Uh, you can't rest. The bunks are hard and small. Uh, too short, too narrow, too hard. The food is bad. Uh, the, the prisoners are ignorant, uneducated violent, uh, many of them are sociopathic or psychopathic, Um, so it's a hard experience. I won't say jail is easy. Jail is hard. And if you're going to commit some kind of uh, civil disobedience, which in a way is really spiritual obedience, how can anyone remain silent, docile, obedient, and compliant in the face of this massive, rampant criminality? that's running our military, our government, our government agencies, uh, so many of the churches, and and on and on. The corruption is just epidemic. How is it possible to remain silent, docile, compliant, and obedient in the face of all of that? I reached a point where it's not. I can't. So I call it spiritual obedience. I don't think of it as being uh, disobedience in any way. I, I think it's only obedience to sanity, sane obedience, let's put it that way. Martin Luther King would have loved you. Well, and I liked a lot of the things that that he had to say. In fact, I've read two or three of his books and and others of his writings, his speeches and so forth, and and, and of course some of the material of Mahatma Gandhi, but, you know, Dr. King and Mahatma Gandhi very much were acting in the spirit of the White Rose. And I have reason to believe both of them were aware of the White Rose, Dr. King in particular, um, they may not have mentioned much about it, but it was very similar, operated in the same kind of ethic. Um, and of course, I issued uh, a I issued a Minot manifesto, which I can send you in, after an interview in an email. You post it if you like on your website after you read it. Um, and 
I also issued a, a statement called A Serious Message from the Heart of America. On um, One week before my trial in federal court, I issued that to the news media in Minot and also uh, to some others. So that's also floating around. I'll, I'll send you that as well. You can post that, that if you like, too. But um, there are many things that people can do and will do and must do if we are going to have a human and humane future on this planet. We're at a time now where it's not a time for shrinking violence. If you have something to say, now is the time to say it right now in 2010 and, and 2011. Not five years from now, not ten years from now, not even two years from now. If you have some courage, if you have some uh, moral courage, now is the time to stand up and be recognized. We need you. The planet needs you. The human race needs you. Um, if you were born for a purpose and you're here now in a sound body and sound mind, now is the time. What's next for you, Richard? Well, I'll continue research, researching and writing, of course. Um, I'm going on a vision quest in November down to South America. Assuming um, I can leave the country, I may now go down to the airport and see if they let me on the airplane. Why see if they let you on the airplane? Well, I mean, you know, I don't know. There's a no-fly list. I hope that I'm not on it. You know what I'm saying? I think there's a way to find out if you're on that, right? No, I don't think so. I think you find out when you try to get on the airplane. I've always been able to fly in the past. I've, I've never not, not been permitted to board an airplane. And in fact, all I'm doing is going on a vacation. So I certainly hope that I'll be permitted to fly. Um, but that's my intent. And then after that, I'll continue writing and speaking and researching. Um, uh, I've been doing it now for the past uh, 15, 16, 17 years. And so I expect to continue that. Uh, I love to travel. I certainly plan to do more traveling. I, I, like to visit, um, of course, South America next month, but I'd also, I'd love to go to India one day. I've never been, so perhaps in the next year or two, I'll go to India. Possibly. Boy, the India that I saw 26 years ago is a different India today. It'd be very interesting for you to go. It's still going to be a mind blower. It's a shock the when you get world, there. The whole world is in a period of frantic transition. And this year and next year are going to be some of the most frantic years. I'd say the last two months of this year in 2011 and 2012 would just be phenomenal in terms of the change and the and the, the world global turmoil, which I think could approach an extreme stage most any week or month in, in, in 10 different ways simultaneously. I would imagine that one of the ways to prosper and to stay grounded during these global transition times of great upheaval and change and depreciation of currencies and maybe a complete changeover of what we call monetary value is really to stay as poised as you possibly can. Yes, and you have to be flexible. You have to be like the willow that bends in the wind because there are going to be some gale force winds blowing. And, and you know, sometimes people ask me, well, where, what should I do? Where should I go? And that's an unanswerable question for me. It can only be answered by each individual, depending on his or her individual circumstances. And you have to look deeply within yourself for that answer. And it may even be, over the next five years, you may be five different places or more doing five or more different things in five or more different contexts, um, or not. Um, because the pace of change is going to be so turbulent and fantastic. Now, you mentioned currency. 
even from reading the headlines in the, in the newspapers and, and watching the news on television, it's clear that the American dollar is in tremendous trouble. It's, it's weakening rapidly. It may be that paper currencies would even fail. I think that was the declaration of the IMF is to actually get rid of currencies and to create a kind of international one world currency of some kind. And I think that all of these things have been declared. The scary thing is that I think it's approaching. Yes, well, that's one of the plans of the powers that be to economically enslave the entire human race, or at least 99.9% of it. Uh, and one of the ways they'll do it is by um, a kind of totalitarian globalization. I would, I would welcome a harmonious uh, uh, global uprising, if you will, as opposed to a violent uprising. A lot of people, I think, want to have a a revolutionary uprising, an armed uprising. I, on the other hand, would much prefer, as Swami Beyondananda has said, to have a global consciousness upwising. And once you upwise, you see the way to go is nonviolent, peaceful, non-cooperation with these very dark, violent uh, global powers that be who want to impose a totalitarian kind of government, a totalitarian um, economic order, economic slave, uh, global slave order, if you will. And the only way we get away from that is to wise up, not to rise up. So we got to put on our best Bugs Bunny, <laughs> Bugs Bunny accent or Elmer Fudd accent and say, hey, everybody, wise up. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> the ethic of the white rose of Dr. And Dr. King did meet with considerable uh, degree of success. We don't have racial segregation by law in the South anymore, anywhere else in this country. So that was a huge achievement. An entire body of law was wiped off the books because thousands of people, thousands of people, primarily black, but not only, uh, violated the law consciously, conspicuously, right to the face of the police. The policeman was right there with the handcuffs, saying, you know, if you violate this law, I'm going to handcuff you and take you to jail. And they essentially said, hey, you know what, Mr. Policeman, make my day, because I am not violating your law, because your law is wrong, and you're wrong, and I'm right. So make my day. And thousands and thousands and thousands of black people did that all across the South, over and over again, until finally... The law just vanished through sheer noncompliance with an insane body of law. Now, I'm wondering when white people are going to get that same kind of courage. To this point, white people are some of the most passive, docile, compliant, propagandized, brainwashed people I've met in my life. There's no outrage they won't put up with. So, so when is it going to be that white people say to themselves, middle-class white people, you know, all of this stuff is abusive, it's wrong, these laws that are being passed to hurt us and to pen us up, to take away our freedoms, our civil rights, our human rights, our civil liberties, our constitutional rights, it's wrong, and we're not going to take it anymore. So, Mr. Policeman, you know, just take your little handcuffs here and do what you will, because I'm not obeying, because you're wrong, this law is wrong, and I'm just not going to comply anymore with this massive criminality. Unless we get to that point, they'll just keep going and going and going. 
I think the most disturbing piece of some of the global changes, aside from altering and depreciating all the currencies and bankrupting countries and governments and all kinds of stuff like this, is that there are preparations to use technology chips to track all transactions. Yes. And that is highly, highly disturbing to me, that this has evolved to such a point where this is part of the agenda. Yes, well, see, that's that's the that's that's what digital technology uh, uh, makes possible. And in post World War II period, with the explosion of digital technology over the last fifty to sixty years, uh, the technology has gotten more refined uh, with the passage of the years, and also it has spread uh, over more and more of the planet to reach more and more members of the human race, so that now, um, I won't say all countries, but most countries of the world are tied in to this um, digital revolution, which is more and more intrusive, and it tracks us more and more in all kinds of ways, including economically. When you're born, you're given an identifying number in most countries of the world. In this country, it's the Social Security number, and then you get others. When you go to college, you get a student identifying number. When you get a driver's license, you get a driver's license number, um, and so forth. We have all of these numbers that are tied into electronic data banks. If you get a credit card, the credit card has a number, et cetera. And all of these numbers are, are, are entered into electronic data banks. They're tied to your name, to your life, to the particulars of your life, where you live, what you do, how much money you have, what you buy, where you go when, how long you stay, what you purchased at the grocery store, uh, where you went to school, what your grades were, on and on and on. Everything about you and your life is entered into these databases. And so they are tremendous social control mechanisms. And you're right, uh, they are being used against people. They have that capability. They are being used against us. They are the way that the powers that be who manage these huge governmental and corporate databases, um, they are the way that the powers that be used to control the herd. Sorry to interrupt you, but if currencies go away and the governments have the right to track your every move, we're really in George Orwell's phenomenon that he described. Then, then, you, then you have a hard decision to make, if you, whether to live in the system or on the outside. And if you live on the outside, then you are going to be marginalized. You will be on the fringes of society. You will be an outcast. You will be someone uh, who lives in the shadows. You will, you, you will live, um, uh, you will not be in mainstream society anymore. And so that will be a decision. Essentially, you will have to decide, do I value my humanity more or do I want to be a slave, a slave for the powers that be? It will be that simple. And in fact, uh, for a lot of people, that point has already been reached, and a lot of people are already heading for the exit and are, uh, by choice, so to speak, marginalizing themselves and withdrawing from the system. So withdrawing from the system is a form of nonviolent passive resistance or nonviolent non-cooperation with the powers that be and their central banking warfare model for subjugation and exploitation and uh, vanquishing of the human race. The fact that currencies are going to be removed, even 
as a line item of a goal list of the people in charge and the agencies in charge makes so serious the fact that there will be no privacy anymore. And if, in fact, humanity is chipped, whether it's done through the body or you have to carry a card in which everything happens, there will be no way to have anonymity. And I know that there are people that say that if you desire anonymity, that means that you're hiding something. I don't agree with that. But I think with each breach of privacy, with each breach where, for example, our medical records are due to go online in 2014, Farrah Fawcett actually had her medical records sabotaged because they were electronically available. That's an example of everything being consolidated in a digital format. And the excuse is what makes it easier for the hospitals. It makes it easier for the transfer of information. It's always about how it's easier and more streamlined. It's a terrible breach of privacy. It's a terrible breach against humanity. And the fact is that when people come from the paradigm that you should just offer it all up unless you have something to hide, that is not what it's about. I would say very few people have anything to hide, but the agencies that want all your information about everything in your life, that is a breach of humanity, period. Well, it's a breach of your individuality. It's a breach of your sovereignty. And, you know, there really is a split in the human race, so to speak, between the goats and the sheep, between the wheat and the tares. There are people who really want to be part of the Borg. They want to just relax into the matrix and be part of the, part of the collective. And um, to them, they love that. Uh, there are people who actually prefer to be a slave, to have their little middle class uh, house the little slave breeding hutch, if you will, where they can go in and breed in front of television and have more little middle-class slaves with their little middle-class credit cards, little middle-class cubicle job, and their little uh, corporate skyscraper in downtown Chicago or New York or Dallas or Seattle or or wherever, Denver, you you got you see what I'm saying. Well, there, look what's happening there, at the there, airports. There are millions of people. There are millions of people who relish slavery, who prefer to be a slave. I'm not talking to those people. Bow down and lick the hand that feeds you. I hope your chains won't callous your ankles and your wrists too much. I'm talking to the people who do want to be free, and to those people, I'm saying that now is the time. If you're going to do something. The time to act is before the last handcuff is clicked around your list, behind the, the, the before the last uh, cell door climbs shut behind you, and, and you're enslaved for all time to come with no hope of freedom whatsoever. We still do have a window of opportunity. I am recommending that if people act, they be creative when they act, and that they be nonviolent, and above all, withdraw support peacefully. Withdraw support from this. To demonic, diabolical system that absolutely intends to enslave all of humanity, mind, body, and soul. You're going to be traveling, and you're going to have to face the fact that they're going to want to get x-rays of your body. What are you going to do? You're going to ask to be strip well, I'm going to try to opt out of the x-ray. You can, you can have a physical frisking instead of being x-rayed. Okay, that's good. I mean, I've been frisked. I've been strip searched. I've the government has my DNA. I've been fingerprinted more times than I can remember. 
Um, so I'm already in all of their databases. I don't like it, um, but I, I am. I, but I'm still speaking out. In other words, we already live in a prison. And that's one thing that became clear to me when I, when I was in jail. It already is a prison. The United States is a prison society. That's a very, very hard thing to hear. It's the truth. You are numbered up, down, and sideways. At any moment, you are subject to arrest. For any reason, real or imagined, if the state cannot find that you violated any law, they're perfectly capable of setting you up on some trumped-up charge and paying people to testify falsely against you and or manufacturing so-called evidence. It happens all the time. The right to detain a person indefinitely without counsel, to me, that was passed, I think, by executive order by Obama early on, was one of the scariest things I've ever come across in this country. Yeah, most people in this country don't know and don't understand that what you just said is true. Um, Virtually anyone in this country, citizen or non-citizen, is subject to arrest at almost any instant on a mere whim uh, without any evidence, and you can essentially be deep-sixed. You can just disappear from the face of the earth into a secret prison. If need be, you can be flown by federal agents or private contractors to another country and, in- and incarcerated, tortured, and or killed with no one ever knowing what happened to you. I think it was an executive order. I'm, I'm not 100% sure, but I think it was. Well, and you have to understand that some of these orders are secret. I think this was public. Rachel Maddow did a piece on this. She was well, outraged, thing, horrified. Thing is factual. Not only that, uh, um, but there's now, for executive order, a so-called authority for uh, Amer- even American citizens to be killed um, when they're overseas. Now, I believe they also do that in this country, but uh, that executive order is on the books, and it's very alarming. Essentially... Essentially, we are under big brother dictatorship, and those who are not willing to open their eyes to it or are, who are in denial to it, all I can say is God bless you. Enjoy your deep sleep. I hope, I hope that the global nightmare doesn't um, intrude into your, into your sleep. You know, sleepy boo, sleep, sleep well. Two kinds of people, those who will sleep through hell and those who will look up wake up and recognize that what what hell is and try to escape. There's another piece of this, though, in my view, Richard, that even if we acknowledge that what you're translating and what we're noticing and what is occurring is true, yeah. the question then remains, how do you walk through the day without accepting so much darkness as a reality? In other words, how do you move through what is occurring which is extremely dark by bringing through and attracting light and being available to solutions and remedies and things like that, staying receptive enough to be aware of what's going on, to be preparing as you're guided to prepare, seeing the shadows of what's coming. Understand that in the short term, really bad things are happening. And in the short term, it's, it's very likely, in my view and other analysts, that far worse things are in are in the offing in the coming weeks and months, but how do you keep in the midst of all of that uh, a bright perspective, as you're saying, a, a kind of a, a golden view uh, 
underlying it all. For me, it's the knowledge that there really is a creator. There is a vast, loving, powerfully positive uh, creative force in the universe. Uh, you can call that force, God, or whatever you want. I don't think the name matters, but it's the reality that matters. Um, that creative force, a creator, or whatever you prefer to call it, um, has brought this planet and this galaxy into existence, has brought me and you and everyone listening into existence. Um, there is a rhyme or reason behind creation that suffuses all of creation. I recognize that and inspires me. It gives me breath. Uh, it's why I can think and live and know and understand and think and s seek and desire and hope. I also have an inner knowing uh, through many spiritual experiences that uh, I have a spirit and a soul, and the vast majority of humanity do. I don't believe that every person in a human body, so to speak, do has, uh, does have a soul. The evidence suggests that there are indeed some very dark, dark and soulless beings on this planet, and they are wreaking great havoc as we speak. But the majority of humans, I'm persuaded, do have a soul. And I think the majority of humans either have or are capable of having a positively, uh, a spiritually uplifting soul orientation if they so desire. Uh, so I am hopeful that even in the midst of all this diabolical turmoil, um, that the human race on this planet, that is those who will survive the next, say, uh, two months to five years, um, that there is a bright future for those who survive this coming period of extreme turmoil. I don't know how many of us will survive what is coming, this tremendous economic turmoil that's going to get much worse in the coming uh, weeks and months, and, and probably the next two, three, four, five years, and wars that are ongoing uh, and killing a lot of people, and it looks like the United States wants to spread those wars to still more countries, like Pakistan and Iran, it just grinds on and on. So in the short term, we're going to have war. We're going to have tremendous economic turmoil and, and probably famine, frankly, because uh, if people don't have money, they can't buy food. And so there are going to be problems on that front as well. So these problems are going to be there. Ultimately, whether you survive or not physically um, may not be up to you. If you run out of money and you can't get food, or if the economy collapses and there isn't food, then guess what? You may die. That's just a hard fact of life. No one leaves this planet alive. We don't want to hear that. I think that a lot of people who are observing the writing on the wall are doing what they can to prepare to have food stocks, not necessarily because they're paranoid, but because they're observant that it would be wise to do so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing. Um, you know, there's, there's an old saying that goes like this, God helps those who help themselves. <sighs> Sometimes people are too passive. Um, I, I read a story about a um, ferry, this was 10 or 15 years ago, that sank in the North Sea. You may remember the story. Um, there was a problem with the door that came loose in the middle of a raging gale. This was in the nighttime. And water got into the hold, and the ferry began to go down. It was quite a large ship with hundreds of people on it. 
the only people who survived that sinking were the ones who said, you know what, this ship is going down. And they put on life vests and jumped overboard in the middle of the night into the North Sea into 20- and 30-foot waves. They were the only ones who survived. The ones who stayed on the ship and said to themselves, you know what, this is a big ship. Uh, everyone else is going, only those crazy ones are putting on life vests. Everyone else is just staying here. It's a big ship. The lights are still on. Um, I'm safer here, going with the crowd, staying on this big ship. You know what? The big ship sank. And those who stayed on the ship sank with it and died. Richard, I'm sorry to interrupt you. What's the name of this story? I don't know the name of the story. It's it's the ship that sank. But the point was there were very few survivors. And they were picked up, you know, a day or two later with life vests. Uh, the vast majority who stayed on the ship went down and died. It was a ferry in the North Sea. It was about 10, 15 years ago. Very interesting analogy and very poignant for our time. There, there, are, there are many ferry sinkings that happen. They're usually in the third world. And usually the people who die are the ones who stay, stay on the ship because the ship goes down, it capsizes, then you can't get out. And so the ones who stay with the ship thinking, oh, I might drown if I go in the water. You know what? They stay on the ship. They're the ones who die. The ones who say, I don't know, the ship is going down. Stay on the ship, I might die. I think I'll jump in and see if I can swim for it. There's, they're the ones who give themselves a fighting chance. Usually you read of these ferry sinkings in, in places like Africa or India or Southeast Asia, places like that. This particular one happened to occur in an off-sea. It's been, like I said, 10 or 15 years ago. I think one of the greatest obstacles to moving in a different direction than the way a person is going has to do with the illusion of safety and comfort. And that that illusion of safety and comfort is so primordial and it's so hardened that it gets in the way of people seeing that what they think is making them safe and what they attribute to being comfortable is keeping them where they are. Let me tell you something. I'll use a 19th century analogy from the, from the slave period in the American South. Slaves lived on a plantation. Everyone knows this. There were overseers. Um, and the slaves had their cabins they could live in. They were fed every day. It was not, you know, five-star restaurant food or four-star restaurant food. It was with just enough to get by on. There wasn't a lot of it, but you could live. You had a slave cabin. It wasn't it wasn't a deluxe uh, hotel room or anything like that, but it w was a roof over your head when it rained and it kept the snow out. You had some clothing. You know what? It wasn't... Uh, it wasn't um, Saks Fifth Avenue or anything like that, or Gucci or Armani, but um, it was clothing. You had a job. It was a terrible job, but it was regular employment. So that, that was your life as a slave. Now, every once in a while, someone would decide to run away. They would decide they didn't like that. Now, if you ran away, you know what? If you were caught, you would be whipped viciously. On the other hand, if you got away... You were free. If you made it all the way to Canada or to the northern states, you were free. You were no longer a slave. So here's the dilemma. Do you like your slavery? Really? Do you like it? Well, then embrace it, because you're going to be a slave the rest of your days. 
If you don't like your slavery, guess what? You've got to make a break for freedom. There's no in-between. Either you're a slave or you're free. So everyone has to make a personal decision. Everyone's break for freedom is different. Uh, but either you're free or you're slave. It's just that clear. It's that stark choice. So if you want to be a slave, embrace the system. Tie yourself to the system a thousand different ways. If you want to be a free, a free person, a free man, a free woman, then you have to withdraw from the system. Thich Nhat Hanh, who is so... Actually, Martin Luther King had nominated him for the Nobel Peace Prize. I have studied under Thich Nhat Hanh, and he has a wonderful monastery in France, at Doulevon, France. And he wrote this book, Be Free Where You Are. Yeah. There are hours and hours that could be done on the whole paradigm of freedom. And I do understand what you're saying. But I think even in shackles, which is really what you're describing is our condition. Yeah. One can still choose to be free even if they're shackled. The question is, you're talking about really living as a free person. Yeah, uh, because what, what sense does it make for, for 7 billion people to stand around on the planet in shackles and say, yeah, but in my heart I'm free. Oh, yeah, really? I don't know how that works. We're all tied up, we're handcuffed, we're shackled, and we're, we're monitored, surveilled, and, 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 and um, followed, you know, 24-7, but we're all free. Oh, yeah? Really? It's an interesting epistemology, okay? I'm not saying that people in jail are free the way you're describing freedom. I'm just saying that there's a paradox. There's a spiritual paradox. And if, and if most people on this planet were actually free on the interior we wouldn't have all these social control mechanisms. They couldn't exist because people that are really free on the interior uh, wouldn't put up with all of this nonsense day in, day out. So we have to begin withdrawing, each person, each in their own way. But at a certain point, you have to say, enough is enough. You have to stand up and object somewhere, somehow, sometime. Otherwise, what sense does it make us to all sit around telling each other how free we are while we're all in chains. That, that's nonsense. I really appreciate you being our guest today on the show. And I know that a lot of these subjects and what we're talking about is difficult. For you, it's probably very simple because you've lived as a free man and stood up to deadening institutions and criminal institutions and agencies. And you're really to be commended for your tremendous courage. Ladies and gentlemen, you can pick up the Richard Sauter briefing at Amazon.com. If you're interested in the other books that were mentioned that Richard wrote, you can find out about those at Keyhole Publishing, K-E-Y-H-O-L-E Publishing.com. Richard, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to be our guest. Thank you, Kim.